Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. In today's world, you know, it, entrepreneurs cannot afford for eight out of 10 customers to be a waste of their time. Yep. If we're getting 80% of our income from you know, to 20% of our customers. And that's to say that eight, eight out of 10 customers are a waste of time. It's so hard to stand out and gain someone's business today. We can't afford that. Mm-hmm. So, and then I think it's been a big shift. You know, in the eighties, we had an abundance of work. I had an eight week waiting list, et cetera. You know, we had an abundance of work in the eighties and maybe even some of the nineties, but boy, has that shifted. And by the time you get someone's attention, you need to maximize it. So the goal of lingo is to build this five step secret language strategy so that people end up with businesses where they're only working with their ideal customers, which is efficient, highly profitable, and so much more fun than any other way of being in a business. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Jeffrey, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Hey, Shreya, I'm so excited to be here with you. Thank you. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So, you know, you and I have connected via Facebook and, uh, you know, mutual friends, and we've known about each other's work. And I know that you have a new book out, uh, which we will talk about uh, in quite a bit of detail, because I think the subject uh, is so fascinating to me. But uh, before we get there, I want to start by asking you a question that I have not started the show with yet. And that is, what was one of your very first hobbies growing up? And what impact did that end up having on you uh, throughout your life? Wow. It's a great question because you know what? I was such a shy kid that um, I didn't engage in hobbies that would kind of take me out of my my own shell. Uh Um, So, you know, honestly, I was always an avid reader. So that was certainly a hobby, but super creative stuff. Like my, my, my mother was into ceramics. Mm-hmm. And so we had these paint, painted ceramic figurines all over the house. And I would secretly gather them all together and lay them out in what I imagined to be the flow of roots from a tree. Mm-hmm. And I would create these villages <laughs> off of trees. And um, that was kind of a, I would say it's kind of a hobby of mine. Like I would, that, that would take up a lot of my time. And uh, so I was just a super creative, little kid mm-hmm. um i more so remembering a, a a hobby and of course that you know the shyness that i that i've spoken about many times I, I now give a tremendous amount of credit to for who i am today i don't consider myself a shy person you know yeah introvert probably but i like being out in the world i don't let it hold me back but i am glad i had a couple decades of learning to become a masterful observer of life. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of stood back in my own way, quietly creating my own little worlds and uh, watching how other people ticked, you know, Mm -hmm. what made other people function. I was, and I was surrounded with some, 
pretty interesting individuals. So, um, you know, that also enabled me to just kind of, you know, decide for myself that that's that's not who I want to be or that is who I want to be. Um, so I'm actually kind of grateful for those those years in a shell, if you will. Yeah. Well, I mean, for you to, to write a book and to, you know, put a message out into the world, obviously, it seems like the shyness is something that you overcame at some point. And I'm curious, like, was there a switch at some point in your life? Like what changed? You know, there's been various switches. For one, I, you know, the irony of my life, I think, is that I chose photography because it felt like the ideal direction. And by the way, I mean, hobbies, I guess it depends on what age. So at around the age of 14, I took up the hobby of uh, photography, but more the darkroom. Uh-huh. We had a darkroom in the house. My father enjoyed photography as a hobby. And I enjoyed the chemical interaction. I loved I loved what could become of a latent image. And to this day, I think that's still, I think that's why I'm a coach. Like (laughs) there's a latency in people, right? There's the potential that lies underneath that isn't yet brought to surface. And that was my love of photography in the beginning, just the mixture of chemicals and watching images come alive. And, um, you know, but I chose photography specifically because it allowed you to withdraw, you know, I survived high school, honestly, because I could skip gym and hang out in, in the darkroom. Uh-huh. Um, you didn't have to look at people in the eye. And it was just it, for me, it was a com- really comfortable environment, even going out in the world and shooting images. There's always that barrier between you and the world because I had this box in front of my face, you know, taking and you know, taking photographs. Um, the irony was I was good at it. So I started getting a lot of attention. In high school, I won a couple of national awards, which actually required my photographs and to some degree that I toured several cities in the country. Mm-hmm. And then I went to photography school and I won every top award, top portfolio and you know all these other awards. I was chosen by the other students to be the student representative and speak at graduation. So the irony was what I chose to keep me held back and, and hidden actually threw me front stage. So there was no immediate sta- sta- switch, if you will, other than then sure. these responsibilities kept getting handed to me. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I think one of the biggest, Shirley, one of the biggest switches of my life, though, what I'd say, you know, much later in life uh, as an adult in my 30s, when uh, I had just begun coach training, not even sure what I was going to do with it. It just felt like a fun thing to do. And uh, I was read Our Deepest Fear by Marion Williamson. Uh-huh. And there's one line in that poem that that was a switch and changed my life. And that one line was, you're playing it small doesn't serve the world. Uh-huh. And I realized how, in its own way, shyness for me was self-centered. It was about me. It was about me not wanting to participate. And even in my 30s, when I was still, you know, I was out in the world a successful photographer, but able to kind of keep in my own safe little world, that one line changed up the game for me. That's when I decided immediately that I wanted to become a professional speaker. Uh-huh. I wanted to do bigger things in my life. And that's, that set the course of action for the past 10 years of my life. Uh, you know, um, the, the thing that you said about the sort of latency that, uh, people have, I mean, how do you, how do you undo that? Or how have you found that people have undone it in their lives and how have you undone it with the people that you've worked with? You know, I, I think most people n- know they're pretty fabulous. I truly believe that. You know, I think there there's uh the reason it doesn't show up is because we've been socialized to be humble uh-huh. and been socialized to have a certain amount of humility, which is not that they're bad traits, sure. but I think they've been misinterpreted. Yeah. So people are afraid to I, deep down I you know the breakthrough I get with people is like when I finally get them to say, I'll say to them, you're awesome and you know it, don't you? Just just admit that. Like, you know you have something unique in you. And they're like, well, yeah, I do know that. 
And I always remember the things that stood out to me were some of the greatest leaders in the world, people like Oprah Winfrey. And uh, I can remember specifically seeing her in an interview and her saying that she knew from the time she was a little kid that she was going to be something special. Mm-hmm. And I give people huge kudos who are willing to say that. Yeah. You know, so that's kind of what I, I want to get people willing to say that about themselves with and and not feel like that's going to have a negative impact on their life. Like that. Oh, my gosh, I'm not being humble. I'm not being you know, I, I'm not pulling holding myself back. I'm too too full of myself. There is nothing egotistical about stepping up and saying you know, look, this is who I am. This is what I'm capable of being because underneath that is almost always an incredible drive to serve mm-hmm. with your uniqueness. Yeah. So it, it's there. You know, I think most people kind of know it. What They, they just don't admit it. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I, you may have heard it. I had a conversation uh, a couple of years ago with Donald Miller, the writer, and he was telling me that he talked to, you know, somehow he found himself in an interview with uh, Pete Carroll, football coach. And he said, Pete, did you did you know you're going to be special? And he was like, yeah, of course, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, not, not, you know, not a moment of, of doubt or hesitation to say that. Um, yeah, it, it is interesting that, you know, we're, we're, hum, you know, socialized to be humble. And yet uh, it takes, I think, a bit of boldness and audacity to, to do these kinds of things that you're talking about. Um, you know, the, the other thing that, that really kind of caught my attention uh, that you said was that you sort of became this very you know keen observer of the world around you. And I, I'm curious if you could expand on that because to me that in and of itself is particularly interesting in a world where our attention is being hijacked by um you know sources of distraction uh i'm i'm you know i've been spending a lot of time thinking about the idea that you know our virtual world worlds are causing us to be disengaged from our actual ones and and i just i'm curious you know what this observation capacity has taught you about people um, and how that has impacted your work. And, and, you know, if you were telling somebody to cultivate this capacity to observe, how would they go about doing it? Which I I realize is like uh, three questions in one. (laughs) So, uh, gosh, well, how do you suggest somebody cultivate it? I mean, I think it's either, you know, I think it's just taking the time to, to, to slow down and, and look around, look on around what's going on around you. And I, I think it's incredibly important in business, I will say. Uh, I think we spend a lot of time in business paying attention to to market trends and you know, what, we, what we can learn in business. And I think what we need to do is spend a lot more time observing the people that we can serve, you know, because human behavior changes at, a, I think, a pretty rapid pace. You know, we think of evolution as being uh, really long process but i think human behavior how we behave today and how we behave you know as a culture in two years can be dramatically different mm-hmm. um and i think that's what we want to observe mm-hmm. right so um you know for me it was as a kid you know again being kind of withdrawn um i also learned to compartmentalize and i think that was one of the things i learned because some of the behavior around me wasn't very favorable mm-hmm. um and what I knew as a kid was it was it was the other in a lot of cases it was the other person and not me. And I've actually had a couple of therapists say to me that I had an, an innate or an unusual ability to hold on to a certain level of self-confidence despite the fact the me- messages coming out were, were quite negative. Yeah. And I kind of looked at it and said, well, there's something wrong with that person. There's something that person didn't get. Yeah. Right. There's something that's that person's doing the best they can with what they know. Sure. And so I'm not going to take that personal. Yeah. Right. So, 
you know, then again, you become a photographer, right? And to me, a photographer is the ultimate profession for observation. And I actually have changed the word observation for much of my life. And I, I've said many times before that if I were to say that there's one, and I don't know that I believe, Shrini, honestly, in a core purpose or one thing, because I think it's always evolving. Sure. But if I had to say there's one common denominator uh, that really is appealing to me is the, what I say is the role of a witness, uh-huh. which to me, a witness is very different than an observer because there's a level of personal responsibility in it. Yeah. Right. So as a photographer, I would set up the environment for a family to come together, a family that maybe has been so busy in their lives, they haven't been connected as well. Maybe there's a funky family dynamic amongst the siblings or between parents and children. And so I would create the environment and then observe or witness what happened. So I always took responsibility for my participation in it, but I didn't, didn't take credit for what became of it. And I feel that way as a professional speaker as well. Like, you know, I, I take responsibility for the room, but I don't own the fundamental shifts that go on for the individuals. I want yeah. them to own that. I'm just there to facilitate it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I've had a chance to talk to a couple of photographers and I don't think I've ever asked any of them this question. Like when you're looking through the lens, um, what are you seeing and, and what are you seeing that, the average person might not even think about like when you're looking at people through a lens, what do you see? What do you notice? What do you observe? Um, and what is it that you're trying to express in, in an actual photo, particularly in the case of photographing a person? Hmm. Well, through the lens, what's always interesting to me is what it's, it's interesting how people don't realize that I can still see them when I'm behind the camera. Mm-hmm. So actually what I see are some really tender moments that they may not expect. Right. It's the husband reaching over and touching his wife's leg. Um, And it's interesting. As soon as I pick my head up from the camera, he'll pull his hand back as if that's not the right way to pose or something, you know. And I don't know that it's like I don't want to be seen doing that, but more it's like I don't know if that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Uh What I I want to see in camera, what they're not supposed to be doing. Right. I like those intimate moments. So it's always been really interesting to me that people don't realize I can still see them when I'm looking through the lens. So what I look for is. You know, it's uh, I'm taking in all the information and map. I'm very aware that my brain is processing the whole thing. I think that's where the sense of composition comes from. But I'm also at the same time looking at the individuals and it is happening simultaneously. Somehow your brain just learns the ability to take in the whole because mm-hmm. I'm looking at the composition and everything going on behind it. But I, I, I'm also seeing the finest of details. And I don't quite know how our brains be- become to be able to do that. But it does. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, honestly, what so much of it starts way before then. Um, it has been remarkable to me how quickly I can get a sense of people. I meet families often for the first time on the shoot and the shoots are all in location, which might be their home, but it might be some other location. And within seconds, I can get a true sense of that family and you get a true sense of the family dynamic. And I kind of know right away which siblings not put together or, uh-huh. you know, which child is closer to the mom, things like that. And that's always been interesting to me that we do wear our hearts on our sleeves much more, I think, than lies. Uh-huh. Wow. Which is both good and bad. I think, you know, I think there's, uh, you know, I, what I like about that is I think that people are more transparent than they think they are. Sure. Wow. Um, 
so one other question about this, and then we'll start getting into uh, sort of how you, you know, what, what caused you to arrive at the conclusion that you wanted to explore in this book. But, um, you know, you mentioned that, you you know, you won awards when you were younger, got to be, you know, speaker at your graduation, like best portfolio. Like, it sounds like, you know, by, by all accounts, like you started experiencing, you know, external markers of success at a very early age. Um, I don't know how old you are, but um, I'm curious, like, if your definition of like success and meaning have both evolved over the course of your life and, and how, if so? Hmm. Well, I'm 53. Yeah. Don't mind. Don't mind admitting it. Well, <laughs> I do. I do sometimes actually. Because <laughs> um, I, I still think I'm 28. It's still it's, it's shocking. I've been into business when I was 20 years old. And so so for most of my career, I was always the youngest one in the room. And now I go to trainings for you know, to improve my speaking. And I look around the room and realize, man, I'm the oldest one here. <laughs> like, it's just shocking to me. Um, you know, has my definition, you know, it's a gosh, Shirley, that's such a great question. Because I think some I still get hung up in defining myself by the typical measures of success financially and accolades. Yeah. You know, I know in my heart the true measure of success are the meaning things in life. I've raised three kids uh, a certain number of those years as a single dad. Um, my kids are amazing individuals. I certainly have not handed them. Um, I mean, they've had a good life, don't be wrong, but, you know, my life has not been a linear one. Uh-huh. Uh, they've come along with me on a fabulous journey and we have a tremendous amount of respect for one another. For one another. So, without a doubt, that is my greatest measure of success um and yeah so i do see success as the meaningful things in life and and uh last year was a big year for me i, I will admit that uh, a, a year to come over big challenges i had ended uh a little more than a year ago I ended a very volatile relationship of six years uh-huh. that i had a, i should have been out of many years earlier and i, I didn't i was i was i was hooked and um the tremendous amount of healing needed to be done for that so you know last year i could I could look at the numbers and say, man, you know, the numbers weren't the measure of success I wanted. But I have to say, I think for one of the first times in my life, I was able to look at 2017 and say, it was a hell of a successful year for what I overcame, for what I got going, and for what got accomplished. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so there it is. I mean, I, I will admit, I still I can be a number counter for sure. Yeah, and I can get caught up in measuring my success against you know money and uh, you know following followers, etc. But at the end of the day, um, you know, it's I, I get what what success is really about for sure, and it has evolved. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the The reason I, I mean, I had a sense that you might be a, a bit older than me, and I, I, I've really thought about this a lot, uh, given that you know I'm, I'm months away from turning forty, and, and my life looks pretty damn near nothing that I thought it would look like, um, you know, when I was in my twenties. And you know, I, I, I couldn't help but wonder if you know, do you become more self actualized and you know more resilient with age? Like the kinds of things that would have thrown you, you know, when you're in your twenties, don't have the same impact anymore that they did. Mm-hmm. You you know, um, when you're in your 40s and when you're in your 50s, I think you definitely come become more resilient. You have more history to fall back on, sure, you have more life lessons. But I'll tell you, my life looks nothing like what I would have expected when I was 20 years old either, either good or bad. Yeah, you know, I, I would say it doesn't look anything like, like you know what I thought it was going to look like on uh, 30. I mean, I was in a really traditional path, you know, mm-hmm. married, raising kids, um, you know, white picket fence, house in Connecticut, you know, apartment in the New York City, a country home in Connecticut, and, you know, the whole thing, and um. 
you know, life takes its turns. I come out at 44 years old and, um, you know, live life a different way. Um, and, you know, sometimes good, sometimes, you know, it's with some uh, volatile parts of life. And, uh, but at the end of the day, it's like, no, I couldn't have imagined that it would look this way. And I'm kind of glad it doesn't, you know, I, I innately would have limited, I'm sure what was possible. Mm-hmm. Because any limit, any expectation I had for myself was low, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, I, I, I come to realize just recently, I think through doing a lot of podcast interviews and, and getting asked a lot about entrepreneurship, I kind of thought, you know, I've never had a real job. I've always been an entrepreneur. And looking back, I think in part of it is because I didn't know if I was employable. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, as a 15, 16 year old kid, I'm thinking, who would hire me? I barely want to talk to people. I have no skills. I, you know, I didn't go to college. So I think, you know, I, I just had this sense like I'm going to have to make this on my own. I'm just going to always make my own job. So I yeah. started selling eggs when I was 14 and Christmas cards door to door when I was 19 and went to photography school at 20 and went into business as a photographer and have always worked for myself. Uh-huh. Um, so if my life did look at what, like I had expected, it would be far less than it actually is. So it's different, Yeah, but it's neither better or worse, I think. Yeah, no, no, that's a really, uh, you know, uh, interesting way of looking at it. And I just feel like things very rarely go according to plan. Um, so, you know, let's, let's talk me through how you arrived at this notion of, of lingo and, and creating the idea, uh, you know, speaking the secret language of your ideal customer, like what led you to want to explore this in particular in a book? Yeah, well, uh, an amazing editor, honestly, because I had written a book in throughout the throughout 2016, I wrote a book uh-huh. and I, I made the, I guess the rookie mistake as an author of writing a book and then getting an editor. And, um, that editor took a look at the book and just didn't think it was strong enough. But more importantly, she asked a really profound question, which was, does this take you in the career direction you wanted to? And it, it really didn't. It was much more of a self-help book. Uh-huh. It didn't really establish the platform of credibility that I wanted to gain as a, a business leader. And um, so in the end, I put that book aside entirely and then started over again in 2017. Now, almost a year to the date of the launch of the book, I sat, I went on a writer's retreat with Michael Port and Mike Michalowicz and I uh, was introduced to an editor at that event who, a different editor than the one I previously mentioned. So I, I meet this editor, I'm sitting in a room, we're chatting about book concept and I, I, I don't even how, know how the topic of this little story that came up at that about when I was 23 years old going to Burdorf Goodman for the first time and why I went there to understand the perspective and how my ideal client would function. And she said, my gosh, that's an amazing story. There's your book. I was like, really that little story? Like it was, it's a 33 year old story. She goes, nobody thinks that way, Jeff. <laughs> like that's just, she goes, that's a really unusual marketing approach. And she started asking me a lot more questions and we realized there was a lot of content to develop on that original story, but then how it's of course because it changed my life. Within three months, I went from a you know struggling business to starting all over again, and, and within a year, multiplying my business five times, and all because of of some actions I took, which we'll we'll talk about with lingo. So that's actually she pulled this thirty three year old story out of me for me to realize, man, I you know it's it's kind of the classic s- scenario, Shrini of what's you're so close to it you can't see it like this has been the story of my life like this has been (laughs) how i this is how i built everything in my life my photography practice then then my my coaching practice and this is how i've been coaching people for years 
and I never saw the I never saw the obvious story right there. So that's where it came from, and I'm so excited about it. And I think what's really cool about it is that I think it's amazingly relevant. You know, and I had a great conversation with Chris uh, Drucker recently, uh, and. What I love about my conversation, he was saying how he has a new book coming out, and our two books are so aligned. And I was saying, well, you know, it doesn't surprise me. I'm a huge believer in collective consciousness. Like, I don't know that I'm clever enough to have an original idea, but I'm a huge believer in collective consciousness. Like, there's a vibe, there's a need of the world, and if you're sensitive to it, you can just hop on board. Mm. And so the cool thing is, is that while this is how I built my business 33 years ago, I think it's more relevant today. Yeah. And will be even in the future. Um, so that's kind of cool. So, but, yeah. but the impetus came from this editor asking just three questions. Huh. Interesting. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quinn's is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal. 
growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah, no, it, it is interesting that we, we don't see the things that are right in front of us. I, I had this post recently yeah. about the things we should have learned in school but never did. And, um, you know, everybody, like I've had a dozen comments like this is, this should be your next book. Um, so, yeah. um, well, let's, let's get into the, the main sort of framework for lingo. Cause I know you break it up into, you know, five sort of key components and I want to basically go through each one of them. So let's start with perspective. How do you define it? Um, how do you apply it? And, you know, what do you want people to understand about it? Sure. Well, what I want to say to preface that is that the goal of lingo as a concept and, and as a book is to help people build businesses where they're only working with their ideal customer, mm. right? Because this has been, this has been the cornerstone of my success. Um, I've, you know, I, I mentioned the book about wanting to stop the Pareto principle, the 80, 20 rule. Um, great concept. I'm not going to say it's not true in many areas of life, but the fact of the matter is in today's world, you know, it, entrepreneurs cannot afford for eight out of 10 customers to be a waste of their time. Yep. If we're getting 80% of our income from you know, to 20% of our customers. And that's to say that eight, eight out of 10 customers are a waste of time. It's so hard to stand out and gain someone's business today. We can't afford that. Mm-hmm. So, and then I think it's been a big shift. You know, in the eighties, we had an abundance of work. I had an eight week waiting list, et cetera. You know, we had an abundance of work in the eighties and maybe even some of the nineties, but boy, has that shifted. And by the time you get someone's attention, you need to maximize it. So the goal of lingo is to build this five step secret language strategy so that people end up with businesses where they're only working with their ideal customers, which is efficient, highly profitable, and so much more fun than any other way of being in a business. Yeah. <laughs> so perspective is the first step, and it's the essential one. And, and I mentioned a little bit about uh, my story at Bergdorf Goodman. That's why I went to Bergdorf Goodman. I mean, imagine, Shrini, I'm a 23-year-old kid. I had been struggling and failing in business for three years trying to build a photography business. What I considered, by the way, to be a high-end portrait photography business in my hometown, this little country town two hours north of New York City, failing miserably. Right. But I couldn't sell anything to, to this community. And I finally realized when a woman said to me, yeah, I made my great pitch about handing down portraits and the value of having photographs for your children's memories. And she looked at me and said, I'm not sure that sounds great and all, but I'm not sure how to pay this month's rent. I don't have the luxury of worrying about my children's memories. Mm-hmm. And I realized my entire view of the world was different than the people I was trying to sell to because I'm an, I'm an incredibly long-term thinker. And when you're working with people who are financially strapped, they can't look beyond that month's rent, right? So such a clash of values. And that's when I got a clue that I had to work with an affluent or luxury market. The problem was I was a lower middle-class kid. <laughs> I knew nothing about affluence. And, and uh, you know, I always say that my only definition of affluence was from watching Bing Crosby's specials on TV. And, you know, what looked like rich people sat around in sweaters, sat around the fireplace and sang songs. Like, and my family didn't. <laughs> so I, that's all I knew. So that's why I went to Birdorf Goodman, like the highest end brand I could possibly think of. Smack on the, you know, in the middle of fifth avenue in new york city and i went there not to, not to study the band not to look at how they did business say but i went there to understand the people that went there right how did they, what was their perspective on the world and what what 
literal perspective did they see when they went into a store like that? What did they experience? What did it feel like? And it was entirely different. I mean, one of the first things that stood out to me was the lighting. You know, I grew up going to places like Kmart, you know, bright fluorescent lighting. I went into this store and it was dimly lit. The way things were merchandised. So perspective is the foundation. You can't go past go until you understand the perspective of your ideal customer. You have to have a willingness to kind of get into their shoes and understand how the world looks like from their perspective without judgment, without assumption, but with a willingness to understand, with compassion, mm. to say, well, if I were they, this is what the world looks like to me. This is what I value. This is the quality I expect. And it doesn't, you know, that, what I love about this whole secret language strategy, Shrini, is that it doesn't matter if it's high or low or anything in between. Mm-hmm. You know, my experience is the high end. But you know what? You need to understand the Walmart shopper if that's who you're appealing to just as much as the high end. Yep. And that's what perspective is all about. It's really understanding without judgment, without assumption, what the world looks like from your ideal customer. You have to know that before you can do anything else. Mm. Okay. So <clears throat> that takes us then to familiarity. What do you mm-hmm. mean by familiarity? Familiarity is, is it creates comfort. You know, and it stands out. This is, I think it's incredibly powerful. So, you know, we're drawn to what's what's familiar to us. The scenario I love to uh, give as an example is when, uh, for example, my first experience with this was when I took my kids to, to Venice, Italy on a trip. And I was, uh, we were on one of the boats on the Grand Canal. And I don't speak Italian, you know, so all the buzz around me is basically white noise. I don't really understand what's being said. But the moment someone spoke English, I heard that person above everybody else. Why? Because it's crisp and familiar to me. It's a native to me, right? And that's largely what lingo is. Lingo is is not necessarily the specific use of word, although it's the fifth step, but lingo is primarily understanding what's the essence of someone, right? What's native to them? You know, lingo, teenagers have a lingo, uh, different cultures have lingos, and is, lingo is what holds a community together. And when we as businesses look at our businesses, not as business versus customer, but when we start looking at what we're building as a community, you want to speak a lingo, you want to create a common essence amongst your the community that you're building. So familiarity um it's really powerful in letting people know they're in the right place. So, for example, by my experience in going to Burdorf Goodman, I understood what was a familiar feeling. Like I said, the dimly lit rooms, uh, how you know, merchandising was uh, full, it had volume, but also very clean. Mm-hmm. And all of this translates online as well. You know, that's that's how you want your website to look like. You don't want your website to look like a dollar store if, in fact, you're trying to reach the high end. You know, or vice versa. So you want to create these um, these moments of familiarity, so people already feel settled in, and it's an it's a huge emotional trigger. And by the way, at the end of the day, all five of these steps are really about emotional triggers. And in the 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 uh, prelude to lingo was a, an e guide I wrote years ago called Emotional Branding Blueprint. Mm-hmm. And when I wrote that years ago, it was about what are the emotional triggers that cause people to become loyal to your brand. And it's having written that years ago, I realized there was a lot more content in that that could be used in lingo. The familiarity is a huge emotional trigger because when people have a sense, feel that it's familiar to them, they feel comforted and they feel like they're in the right place. What are the other emotional triggers? 
well, that would be the, the next step. The next stage would be style. Uh-huh. Um, style is the decision maker. And I think it's often overlooked, you know, because we we want to be innovative. We want to rock it out. We want to be different than everybody else, which is great. But you also want to be aware that people make really quick decisions based on style. We do it every day. We walk down any main street, any mall. We flip through websites. Um, and what stops us in our tracks is whether the style of something resonates for us. Uh-huh. Right. So when you understand the perspective of your ideal customer, you want to say, well, what style resonates for them? You know, is it contemporary? Is it traditional? Is it colorful? Is it warm? You know, I like to compare it to if you were to go to a, a, a discount clothing store, like a TJ Maxx or something, and you'll find all the designers in the medium section. Mm-hmm. And as you flip through the hangers, you know, what causes you to stop? Right. It's the style. Like there's yeah. something about that shirt. All else being equal, all the sizes are all equal. What causes you to stop is the style of that shirt because it's saying something about you. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, the relationship between customer and brand is often we want the the brand is saying something about us, right? I, without a doubt, buy Apple products because I feel like it makes me amongst the cooler community of technology, you know? mm-hmm. right? And they and Apple did a brilliant job at making that so clear many many years ago with the I am the I am. I'm a PC and I am a Mac commercial. It's like they just split it in half and said, well, you know, cool technology looks like this. Boring technology looks like this. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, we want to create a style that we know is going to resonate for, again, our ideal customer, which, again, you can only understand once you understand their perspective. Mm. So that takes us to price, um, which is yes. always an interesting one. Like I, I you know, I <laughs> constantly see people. You know, the one thing that I hear over and over again is how so many people underprice their services. Yeah, yeah. Oh man, it it, it is. It's it's. Uh, it distresses me, as you can tell, because I work with people who are so amazingly talented in many different areas of life, and they they so struggle with it. And I think part of the problem is they think price is going to repel people, when actually, if you're aligning the pricing psychology with your ideal customer, it actually should draw them in. Like people make a decision. You can you can you actually get to decide where in the market you want to be uh, placed based on your pricing psychology. So the phrase I I talk about all the time is pricing creates perception. Mm. So the first thing I ask the people that I work with to do is to decide what is the perception they want of their business. Do they want to be perceived as affordable? Do they want to be perceived as high-end? Do they want to be perceived as quality? Whatever it is, you first decide on how you want to be perceived and then price accordingly. Yeah. The thing that drives me most crazy are the number of businesses that that you look at their pricing and it's the classic, you know, 199, 197, 297, f- you know, 447, 997. These that whole pricing structure of being just shy of the full number. Uh-huh. And then they wonder why their customers nickel and dime them. Sure. And like You've actually spoken a very cost conscious language and have gone forward the cost conscious customer uh-huh. by your pricing structure. Wow. Right? And it's incredibly important. And again, I learned this in that one visit to Bergdorf Goodman because, you know, the joke of, of lingo, one of the, I think, one of our humor parts, humorous parts of it is when I started my photography business in my hometown, thinking I was going to be a high end portrait photographer, my eight, my eight by 10s were priced at $48 and two cents. Mm-hmm. The weirdest pricing, but I learned a formula in photography school about how to price your goods, and I followed it verbatim. Didn't even round it off. Forty-eight dollars and two cents. 
what I realized at this visit of Bergdahl's is everything was just, you know, $1,000, $500, $50. It was just all rounded off, right? Very vague. So where Walmart, on the other hand, everything priced to the 100th of a cent. Mm. So you get to decide what is the perception. But it's so incredibly important that you don't create a perception of your business that is one way in your pricing, but then when people actually work with you, it's a different experience. Yeah. And it's equally important if you're priced too low. If you're priced too low and people have, you know, just an, get an amazing amount of value from you, you're leaving money on the table. Uh-huh. Right? Um, one of the, I think one of the fun things, fun observations I've also noticed about pricing, and I think everyone can relate to this, is if you go into any typical department store, uh, Target, Walmart, the first thing you see when you walk in is a lineup of registers. Right? It's a very transactional, very cost-conscious experience. Yep. Whereas if you go into a high-end store, you're lucky if you find a register. Yeah. Right? They don't. They take. Right? They don't. That's not the focus. I also make the comparison between a diner versus thing dining. If you go into a diner, when you walk in the door, the first thing you see are you know register leather menus and a bowl of mints. Yep. Right. You go to a high-end restaurant. There's no register waiting for you. There's a hostess stand. Uh huh. Right. So it's what do you bring attention to? And if you bring attention to cost consciousness, you're going to call forward cost conscious customers. And it's one of the biggest breaks I see in businesses. And I tell people all the time, you can't present your business in a cost conscious way and then complain that people are nickel and diming you. It, you called forward the wrong person. You're not speaking the right language. Wow. Okay. Wow. Okay. So that takes us to the final component of this, which is words. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, and I think the most, to me, the most interesting thing about talking about words at this stage is that it is in fact the last stage. You know, um, most businesses, Srini, and I know you know this too, are built backwards. You know, most people have a great concept for a business. They build the business they want, and then they spend years running around trying to fit, trying to fit people into the business, uh-huh. right? And that's why they struggle. The right way to build a business is actually to do this work, to understand their perspective, know what's familiar to them, understand their style, build the right pricing psychology so that you can then build a business for them. Words have to come last. Because words are the communication, whether they're your branding words, your website, your promotional materials, words are the communication between you and potential customers. You can't possibly be using the right words until you've gone through the previous steps. And yet, typically, when someone goes in business, the first thing they do is build a website. Mm-hmm. Right? But they've not yet figured out who it is that they want to draw to that website and how to do it. And the words flow with such ease once you've done the previous work. I have an absolute rule for myself that if I sit down to write, be it an email or, you know, page on a website, if it doesn't flow easily, there's something inauthentic about it or it's just not my time. I put it aside. Mm-hmm. Like I don't struggle through writing and I felt this way about writing lingo as well. If it, I didn't do struggling writing days, yeah. I only wrote in flow and, you know, so it becomes easy because you understand who you're speaking to so well. It's it's like fluency, uh-huh. right? It, you can struggle. We struggle when we're trying to speak a foreign language. Sure. We have fluency when we're speaking a native language. So when you know the, your ideal customer so well, the word pour out of you. And a couple of the specific exercises that I teach in Lingo, one in particular is my favorite. It's called the self-identifying questions. This has been turning point for me. Uh, and I love seeing it work for other people as well. The idea of a self, well, let me even back up the self-identifying is the key point. 
because long gone are the days where we sell people that we are the right business for them. Mm. We don't market to people anymore because, you know, you market to people, they back up. Right. So we have to give people the opportunity. We have to compel them and we have to give them the opportunity to walk towards us and and even more so give them the chance to identify that they are our right customer, our ideal customer, as opposed to us saying to them, I know that you're my ideal customer and want to serve you. Mm. You have to let them figure that out for themselves. And the way to do that is to pose questions that speak to them and then what's in their heart or be it a pain or something they need to solve, but pose questions that are so insightful to who they are that they feel like, man, this person is speaking directly to me. You know, you may have had that feeling when you've read the back of a book mm-hmm. and you're like, wow, it's like this author is in my head. Yeah. I need to read this book. Right. So that's that's what you want to do. And I, I use self-identifying questions all the time in my marketing. I'll pose questions like, you know, have you reached a plateau in your business and you know you're capable of more, but you don't know where to go next? You know, um, are you tired of working really hard, but hardly getting ahead? Um, you know, things like that, that you want to pose these, um, one of my favorite stories in lingo I tell is of a photographer that I was coaching who specializes as a photograph in newborns. And she's known to be the best in her city. She's received numerous awards to say so. And, um, you know, and that's how she was marketing herself, you know, number one child photographer, et cetera. Um, and it wasn't working for her. And when I worked with her, I was like, you know, I don't think you're getting into the mindset of a, new, a parent of a newborn, mm-hmm. right? I, what are they feeling? What's their experience? And through a great deal of discussion, we, what we came up with is that uh, for the newborn, we came up with this phrase, this, the parent of the newborn, that would say, um, has your world stopped, yet time is going by so quickly, right? That's you know if you're a, if you're a mom of a newborn, let's say you're up in the middle of the night, you're flipping through breastfeeding, you're flipping through Facebook, you read that, and you're thinking this photographer gets me. Mm-hmm. This photographer understands my experience. That's exactly what I've like I said, I've raised three kids. That's exactly what it feels like when you first have a baby in your hand. It's like man, your world has stopped. But at the same time, it's you you know that time is fleeting and it's going by, and you want to capture it. That's speaking to the heart and the essence and speaking the lingo of someone as opposed to just telling them what your abilities are. So words are, you know, what I say of branding, and I think branding gets beat up a lot. People, it seems that people seem to love or hate branding. Yeah. Well, but what I'd like to say of branding is that branding is the communicator when you're not present. Huh. And there's a tremendous amount of time that we're not present in the way when people are interacting with our brand. Sure. And you better make sure it's speaking on your behalf. Yeah. Wow. Um, so I want to finish by sort of talking about uh, the practical application of this in our daily lives. I mean, it seems to me that, you know, we're talking about this from the perspective of, you know, your ideal customer. But I, I get the sense that this is something that could be applied to people that you deal with even in a social context. Hmm. Interesting. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, it well, that way. but. I hadn't, well, you know, I hadn't except it makes sense, right? Because one of the things that had a huge impact, do you know the book, Sharni, do you know the book, The Five Love Languages? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You read it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I don't even know when it was written, but it's when I, at the time I wrote it, I was a, a, the dad of three young kids and, and married at the time. And my family of five represented all five love languages, which I thought was so cool. Uh, but it, I tell you, it, it gave me a great understanding as to why, you know, my son, my oldest, 
I totally got him right from the beginning, right? Because he's a words of affirmation guy. And that's, you know, as is often the case, that's what I didn't get as a kid myself. So when I became a father, the first thing I was going to do was praise my, my child. And, you know, so my son got tons of words of affirmation and it, perfect fit for him. Well, then I had this daughter come along who, you know, had us all puzzled. She was stronger than anything from birth. Like, I mean, she just, she was walking at nine months. Like she was going to take on the world from the moment she was born and words of affirmation had zero effect on her. And what we realized is through reading that book is that she is a quality time kid. Now, I wasn't going to get any good behavior out of her until I gave her my time first. And but once I read that book, I'm like, oh, I get it. You know, we're similar, but we're different. Sure. You know, we're a family. And this is true of, of business, too. Like the community you build, there's similarities like a family, but there are differences in the individuals. Mm-hmm. So I think you're 100% right. I mean, I think the root of this came from when I read Five Love Languages, I, I couldn't help but think about how I had already been applying principles in business. Mm-hmm. And so you're right. I think, you know, at the end of the day, this is all about, I, I like to think it's almost all about empathy. Yeah. And this is what I challenge entrepreneurs with. Are you willing to have the empathy? And we all have it. It's just whether, whether are you willing to use it? Are you willing to use the empathy that you have mm-hmm. to fully understand your ideal customer yeah. so that you can create a business that's meant for them and you end up with everything you want in life as well? Right. But the first question is, are you willing to have the empathy? So it is at the end of the day, it is a very human social uh, context, as you say. Wow. Well, I I think that makes it really uh, fitting into our conversation. So I want to finish by asking you my (laughs) last question, which I know you've heard me ask. Um, What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think what makes somebody unmistakable is their perspective. You know, and that, that's what fascinates me. That's what, as a business coach, that's what I'm digging for with entrepreneurs is, you know, it, there's hardly any field that anybody can be in that isn't already f- full, right? There's already there's competition in every full field, but you can separate yourself by what is your unique perspective on it? What is, what do you bring to that skill set? Mm-hmm. Uh, and from your perspective, like, you know, your why is in there, but it goes beyond your why. Like, what do you have unique to bring to that? And I think, so I think perspective is what makes us unmistakable, even in, you know, politics, right? I may not agree with somebody's perspective, mm-hmm. but there's a really good chance I won't forget them. <laughs> right. So to me, uh, I like to focus on perspective of, of people like that, but you can bring to it different. I think perspective is better than different. You know, I think uh, sometimes people try to stand out by being outlandishly different, particularly creatives. You know, the more outlandishly I can present myself, that'll help me stand out. And that's not that doesn't make you unmistakable to me. What makes you what makes you unmistakable is your perspective on what you do or life or life lesson. This is why to me, this is why quotes are so powerful, because a quote can give me a different perspective on something than I've ever thought thought about before and at the end of the day that's what we remember we as the, the cliche phrase you know we remember how people make us feel not what they said yeah so when someone can shed a different perspective from me i find that unmistakable hmm. wow wow amazing um where can people find out more about you your work in the book 
So actually, we've put together a, a, um, a media kit and have created a page just for uh, your your audience, and uh, they can get that at jeffreyshaw.com forward slash unmistakable creative. Awesome. And it's the Lingo Media Kit, which contains a, an infographic, a visual representation of the five steps we covered. It has a free chapter that actually the chapter on perspective, because I think it's the most important one and an audio version of that chapter as well. So the Lingo Media Kit, jeffreyshaw.com forward slash unmistakable creative. Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. 
Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.